You're listening to KXOB, Ocean Beach, where Constancy is the spice of life. Welcome to Beach Cop Detectives, a Terriers podcast. Episode 14, the series. I'm Randy Lander of the TV Dudes. With me today is Grant Davis, also of the TV Dudes. Hello. And Nate Bliss of Marvel TV Binge. Hey, what's up? So we are here for the magical bonus episode of Beach Cop Detectives. Yeah. Terriers did not get a magical bonus 14th episode. No. But Beach Cop Detectives does because these two with me are the brain trust that really put this whole thing together. We're the ones who did all the work, and by which I mostly mean Grant, who not only not only did Grant edit every episode and on all the interviews, he also colored all the artwork. Yes. So uh, where Nate and I each had very specific jobs, Grant had every other job. I also ran the social media. That's posted true. everything. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You did that too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, hey, it wasn't all. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to get us all together because I want us to talk about how the show came together and that kind of thing. And that's what we're going to do in the second part of this bonus episode. Yes. But in the first part, we are going to talk about sort of an overview of Terrier. Just we've gone episode by episode through the show with a variety of co-hosts. So the three of us are going to get together and we're going to talk about the show as a whole and what made it special and our favorite episodes and on what we think about the characters and all that kind of stuff. Excellent. So let's get started, guys. First of all, just let's talk about the series as a whole. What was it that made Terrier stand out as a beach noir detective show that made it elevated it so high? I have to admit, I never actually watched this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is going to be awkward. I'm really on my death here. <laughs> Uh, I mean, this show is fantastic. It knows how to be small scale to keep things, everything really grounded. Mm -hmm. And you root for these little guys that are way in over their head. You know, the more I think about it, I like the title <laughs> actually a lot. I've come around on the title too. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody I talked to griped about the marketing and some of them griped about the title. And I, I do still think the marketing could have been stronger, but the title may not necessarily be as big of a problem as we think it is. I think Terriers was just a show ahead of its time. Mm. I watched a little interview that Donald Logue did with Kelly Wheeler in a little behind the scenes clip. And he mm-hmm. was talking about the title as well and how it's one of those titles that if you give it enough time and, and people acclimate to the title, it, it's something that you won't even think about. And it makes perfect sense. But you have to kind of understand that Terriers was formerly a, an old school gumshoe detective kind of term. Mm-hmm. And it also fits with being scrappy kind of underdogs and being, you know, uh, relentless in your pursuit of of the truth. But they're the little guys, and, and Terriers are little. Yeah, no, yeah. it makes a lot of sense. I mean, look at some of the successful shows. Like, Justified doesn't necessarily tell you anything about what that show's about. True. C- Cougar Town, right on the nose. Cougar Town was right on the nose. <laughs> it was a town full of cougars. No, no regrets with that title. <laughs> but... The I think one of the things that really, really set the show apart, I think filming in San Diego made a big difference because it had such a sense of place. Like yeah. Ocean Beach, I feel like I know Ocean Beach having just watched this show. Yeah. Like I feel like I go there and go to their bar that I thought was such a cool location and you could go to the hotel where they got married and that kind of thing. And of course you can because it was locations. Yeah. yeah. But I feel like I'd be in Ocean Beach. The other thing about that is that like with every great noir story the city that it takes place in yes. is a character. Yes, absolutely. Know? I mean, uh, talking about like, you know, tropes 
you know, it, it but good tropes. I mean, because yeah. this is like, you know, yeah, it's a good sense of place, and it's like you know the environment almost more than you know. I think I know Ocean Beach more than I know Austin. <laughs> and I live here. You know, I mean, that's uh, funny though because in a way, the Ocean Beach is also this sort of scrappy underdog. Yeah, because it is this gem from the past. It's it's this small beach community in a land of gentrification and condos. It, as we know all too well here in Austin, yeah. <laughs> like the fact that there's this small little community that has beach property and it's not filled with just gaudy condos that are like right. from here to there. It actually right. has homes. And that's, as we learn throughout the show, that's actually something that is at risk. Yeah. As, as much as anything, because they're going to pave it all down and uh, build an airport. Well, yeah, the push-pull of, of terriers throughout is the rich versus the poor. Yes. The institutions versus the people. So when we get someone like the city councilman we see at the very end, you see, oh, this guy's an institution, but hey, he's still a person. He's one of us. And then you, you find out, oh, no, he's not. He was an institution all along. Yeah. And Cutshaw is the ultimate institution. He's a real estate developer and a guy who is just evil to the core as a person, but it's it's the institution of him that makes him evil. Also so incredibly far removed from everything that happens in yes. the city. Yes. You know, we only see him for, like his scene was like seven minutes. Yeah. Tops. Yeah. You know, but we're spending the rest of the season with all these other characters in the streets and the gutters and, and the, the, the other parts of the city, you know? Yeah. Yeah, he's this big bad that comes in at the uh, the eleventh hour. Yeah, but well, it, in such a powerful role, it, it just feels fitting that like they thought they'd figured out the end game, and there's this whole other layer. There's this one more player at the end, and I I, th- I thought overall everything just fits with how they structure this world, and they do such a, a great job. I also really like the way that Terriers builds. Because it starts out and it's about these two guys. And yeah, they're, they're dealing with a rich guy who got away with something. But eventually they are on top of like, basically they saved the city. Yeah. And it's very noir because it builds into something like Maltese Falcon that starts because the guy's partner get killed. Or Chinatown that does that leads up to this great thing about the water in Los Angeles and what's going on there. And all these noir stories start small and eventually are about these bigger, larger than life issues that can only be stopped by these scrappy guys who decide this far, no further. And also, I like that they do that without making Hank or Brit into superheroes. Yeah. And I say mm-hmm. that as a big fan of superheroes, but like one of the things about Superman is he does the right thing because it's the right thing. Hank Dolworth does the right thing because he thinks it's the right thing and half the times he's wrong. Yeah. They're very flawed characters. Yeah. Which makes them very accessible in a way that Superman, I'm sorry, he's not. <laughs> I can't relate to Superman. You know, you're going to make Superman very upset to hear that <laughs> you can't relate. Something very alien about that guy. I got to admit. <laughs> but I think the the arc of the show, the way the way it goes from we are introduced to Lindus in the first episode, like like a lot of what's going to happen at the end is there in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I mean, it all circles back around to Mickey Gosney's coat. Yeah. And a lot of that, as we found out over the course of this this podcast, was the writer's room being very smart and using every part of the buffalo, basically. Yes. Every <laughs> single part of the buffalo. The trick is, and this is not uncommon, this happened with Lost. I'm sure it's happening right now with Leftovers. It's something that happens with a lot of TV, is all this stuff that's got this heavy arc is usually the writers, don't they don't know where they're going for sure. They want to let the show breathe. They want to let the story breathe. And they want to bring it all to a close. And the further you spread, the harder that is. And the thing I think Terriers does better than almost any other show is 
everything feels like it was planned from the beginning, even though it absolutely wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're kind of writing as you go along. It's funny because I was talking to you right before this about reading some old message threads yeah. about how people are looking back on the season. This is back in 2010. Mm-hmm. And people were saying that Cutshaw who we get revealed to in the 13th episode, they say, if you go back and look at episode four, I'm pretty sure he's in the bar scene in the background. <laughs> like, no, no he's, he's not. totally not. And, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, if, if any of the, uh, the cast and creators are listening to this, but I'm pretty sure they came up with a lot of these plot points a little bit further along when they were nearing the finish line of the season. Well, I know that for sure, because Ted Griffin mentioned it, that, that they brought in <laughs> Neil, McDonough. Neil McDonough because he was a friend of his, he was doing him a favor because he had done a movie with him. Yeah. And so that was not planned. Cutshot wasn't there. Cutshot, Neil McDonough was not on the set. And why would he be in that bar? <laughs> no, he wasn't as much. Yeah. He just slumming it yeah. with these guys. No. Well, you know. The, While he, killing Mickey Cosby. You know, actually... He was a guy who slummed, though. That was that was one of his things that he would he went to used to go around with Mickey Gosney you know, in Mexico. That's what got him into so much trouble. Is he liked to slum around and drink. But he tries to be a good person. Sometimes something else inside him tries a little harder. One of my favorite lines. That's so a good, line. good. It's a powerful line. Yeah, and just gives you chills. Yeah, it does because he he knows full well what he's doing, and it's also just indicates it's just as bad as we think. Yeah, structure wise with mm-hmm. this season, I kept thinking of parallels between this. And another favorite, especially of yours, but of ours, mm-hmm. Justified. Yeah. Especially like in the overall arc. And I have problems with Justified that I do not have with Terriers. And that Justified, I didn't like that it seemed like they established the arc in the first two episodes. And then it goes really episodic for all the rest of the episodes until 12 and 13. Yeah. And here we have a little bit of a different structure. It seems to establish it in episode one. It revisits it in episode four and And five. five. Yep. And then it comes back to it for like the last three episodes. And I feel like that's a much stronger format for structuring a season arc to kind of thread it through while still showing like the rest Mm -hmm. of the character development. And touching back on it, it's, it's a really good way. It's sort of, they land, they make their mark in episode one. Then they show you episodes two and three, like, oh, this is what the show will look like on a normal week, mm. on, on its episode of the week, which, by the way, still very strong. A lot of these shows, oh, I love you, them, go, <laughs> you go to X-Files, you go to uh, Battlestar Galactica, you go to a lot of shows that are arc-heavy, and people get frustrated with the episodes that are not arc, Yeah, the episode of the week. Now, as time goes on, I think we've all decided the X-Files episode of the week were usually better, but in general... Episode of the Weeks, fans are not as happy with because they want the arc. They want that that meat of the story. Terriers, the Episode of the Weeks were always good. They were always still doing a bunch of character development, which was carried through. Yeah. So character arcs were dramatically being shaped in each each episode. That's true. We learned something about Hank and Britt in every episode we ever saw. Yes. Mm-hmm. There was never an episode where it could have been a spec script from a different show. This felt like it it all felt like terrors. And part of that, of course, was that it was all from the writers when there weren't any outside writers coming in. And then you land, you do two episodes to show sort of what the show is going to look like episodic. Then you jump back in for two episodes that are arc. Then you jump back out for some more episodic and then you jump back in. Yeah, it's a perfect way to get sort of have your cake and eat it, too. Exactly. Yeah, because sometimes when you have bookends. Yeah, it's like what you're talking about, Justified. It just feels like, it feels too detached. The, it was like the, two shows, right? Yeah, yeah. But with this one, it's more of like, this is a soup, you know? 
there are a lot of parts of the soup, you know, like, uh, there's, there's some meat in the soup. There's some carrots in the soup. There's some potatoes in the soup. I think I just want some soup. Yeah. Metaphor, I think I just, I, this yeah. metaphor is it's going, going some really, yeah, I'm just thinking that, about soup right now. That metaphor just kind of got away from you. It did. I was kind of wanting to see where it went. It was good. Yeah. I, I, it just went to where I wanted soup. So. <laughs> well, as we're talking about the ingredients in the soup, one of those ingredients was the case of the week. Should we talk about the case of the week? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I went through and ran ran through the case of the week. And because there were a couple that were specific arcs and there were a couple that didn't have a case of the week, there's actually only eight cases of the week in a 13-episode season, technically speaking. And those those cases are Lindis and Mickey Gosney looking for Eleanor Gosney. Mm-hmm. And what I like about that one is that it starts off as one thing, starts out as doing a favor for a friend and becomes a case. Yeah. yeah. That, that's what kickstarts a whole thing. Yeah. I mean, and, obviously, <laughs> it's a pilot. And then the second episode is they're picking up a job. They're not actually hired. They just pick up a flyer for Montel. They become bounty hunters. To become yeah. bounty hunters. <laughs> and I love that they're willing to break the format that early. Second episode. Yeah. They're willing to say, well, sometimes these guys just go out and find a job because they need the work. Yeah. And then the third episode, he stumbles onto the bank manager who wants him to find his wife is cheating on him. Of course, in True Terrier's faction, there's a twist. But again, that's that's the job finding them. You know, it's it's funny. They don't actually get a case assigned to them. No. Because their lawyer, Maggie, we're revealed later, I think it's first with the engagement ring, that she's kind of a conduit to assign cases to them. Yeah. And yet we don't get that kind of reveal. Like, how are they getting these cases? It seems like they're just kind of stumbling onto cases here and there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Well, it's funny because, and I all I know about this is from reading Daredevil and Jessica Jones, but Jessica Jones in the Marvel comics is was Daredevil's investigator. And I guess attorneys sometimes have investigators on staff. Mm-hmm. So they were her investigators, which makes sense. Yeah. But you're right. We don't see that until like episode nine. <laughs> it's, it's a little older than that, but it's a while. But they're stumbling into cases. And the reason they're stumbling into cases, they don't have an office. Yeah. yeah. They have a diner. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have a place where people can come and find them. They don't, they're not in the book. So if the diner is their home base, do they get their first case from the diner? More or less. They get, I think they get a call from Gustafson. Ah, okay. And they find out about his buddy has been in the drunk tank and you know they go to help him and that's where that all that all starts. But then they go and they're they're hired by Lindus, who they framed for murder <laughs> to steal money to get his bail. I love that because yes. it diverges from private investigators to thieves to, to pulling off a bank heist essentially. Yeah. And it, it's such a fun like switch yeah. in the formula. Well when you've got Ted Griffin, who wrote one of the best heist movies ever, Ocean's Eleven, of course there's going to be a heist in there somewhere. Yeah, then you better deliver, Griffin. <laughs> <laughs> that heist where, where Britt gets to use his old thief skills again is one of my favorite moments of the show, too. Yeah. It's really fun. Then they get hired to look for the engagement ring. That's by Maggie. Mm-hmm. That's maybe their their biggest... Maybe that may be their only legit case, actually. Looking at it, <laughs> yeah. that is looking at this list of cases like that's the only case where they get hired to do something, they basically do the job, and even that one, they don't wind up doing the job because the guy who hired them, they don't give him the ring. I mean, if right. you think about it, these guys are like the luckiest private investigators ever. <laughs> week after week, it's just like a case falls in their yeah. lap. Well, the thing is. They're going to solve it. Like, they always get to the answers because Hank is very good at what he does. He's a good investigator. Yeah. But they're not the immoral or amoral private detectives. So if they find something that indicates that you're a bad guy, they're not going to help you with your case. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when they find out, for example, that the guy who hired him to get the ring is cheating and has a second family and that the the woman who's dying of cancer just wants to give the ring to her son and it's worth a ton of money... 
They're not going to give it to the sleazebag guy. They're going to give it to the dying woman to give to her son. Yeah, they're like, screw that guy. <laughs> so, and then they help the amnesiac college student. Mm-hmm. And that one's just a stumble into it. And that's actually, that's not even a case where they're helping that kid. Like that kid, there, there's a lot of problems with that kid. Hank's helping his sister. That's yeah. what that whole case is about. He's helping his sister by proxy. Yeah. That, that was a way to kind of dive into some of his, yeah. not to call her baggage, but, you know, some of his own personal uh, baggage as well. Well, how he relates to her mental illness and feels sort of like he's let her down. Yeah. Uh, even though there's nothing really he could have done. And then there's the cartel in Mexico, which is Oof. just Brit getting dragged into something by his ex-partner. Such a fun one. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was great fun. And that was kind of less of a case and more of just like, shit's going to hell. Yeah. And we need to pull it out. Well, it was more of that criminal stuff, too. They they have to bust out of jail. They have to steal some evidence from the police. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was very much in that... uh, It's like an action movie. Yeah. 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 Well, and it was funny because Alan Supplemall mentioned this in our last episode. We were talking about their whole, let's go to Mexico instead of taking you to jail. And as he pointed out, Ted Griffin, I think, said to him in an interview, they can't go to Mexico. We've totally forgot about that. But if they go to Mexico, they're going to have some serious problems. <laughs> they had a hell of a couple weeks. They probably forgot as well. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and then the final case they have before they get turned on to the big case of the airport and that kind of thing is the smallest possible case for Brit to start out on, which is getting Cody's money back from the from the prostitute. Mm-hmm. Which turns into helping Michaela find out who killed her friend. Yeah. And that's that's a great episode. And it's another one of those, most of the cases they take, they twist another way. And that that's one of the things I like about the episodes of, of Terry is every time is that it never goes where you're expecting. Mm-hmm. But it also never goes to a place where like, well, that doesn't make any sense. It always, it always a through line. Yeah. Did you have a particular small case of the week episode that was your favorite? I love that, the, the Michaela episode. Pimp I, Daddy. Pimp Daddy. Yeah. I, I love them looking for that. For, for that, I, I love them looking for a uh, missing prostitute. I love them sort of delving into these people who don't get help from the cops. So the only way they're going to get help is a private eye with a soft heart mm-hmm. who, you know, cares enough to do this. I thought that that really showed sort of the, the niche that Hank and Britt both fill, mm. which is that they are supposed to be the people who help the people who can't get help from the institutions. They're the they're the help for, for the smaller guy. So you're saying they are Superman in a way? <laughs> they're they're uh, they're Batman. Oh, um, yeah. They're as damaged as Batman. That works <laughs> <laughs> for me. Well, I mean, it it's got to be the same episode that I came on to talk about on the podcast, and that's Change Partners, episode three. Mm-hmm. It was an early episode, and it, like you said, Randy, it was kind of setting things up. Where here's how things work with a case of the week, but that one took so many weird turns on the podcast. I kept raving about the last nine minutes. There were so many things yeah. that happened within those last nine minutes. That's of one that of my episode. favorite moments of editing these podcasts. Oh, really? Was your nine-minute breakdown of, <laughs> of that episode and how giddy you are. You're like, eight minutes. Dude, this happened. T minus eight. Seven T minutes. T minus seven. It was so good. It T was minus six. Because, I mean, the first time I ever saw that that episode, I mean, that like I've en- I enjoyed episode one and two very much, but the episode three is when it just grabbed grabbed hold of me like a terrier and just didn't let go. And it just 
carried me along and uh, just th- that incredibly twisty like third act of that episode and leaving on that cliffhanger where we learn it's Steph who's kind of been crashing you know secretly in yeah. Hank's house all this time but we as the audience don't know that and we just know it's like who the hell is sneaking into Hank's house? Who's climbing in the attic? This is so strange. Yeah. It was that kind of like rug being pulled out from under you moment that it basically locked me into the show. That moment of anything could happen here. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Grant, what about you? What was your favorite case of the week? Foster Cluck. Oh, yeah. yeah. It had a heist in it. Yeah. Yeah. And it had the reveal of his sister. Mm-hmm. And then it ends in such a holy shit tragedy yeah. at the yeah. end. That the whole episode, how it's structured, it just it keeps you on the edge of the seat. Like literally. I, yeah. I we went and watched it at ATX Fest and I was sitting for it on the edge of my seat. <laughs> so good. Well, and the other thing about Fuster Cluck that I think is really notable is that it also has a lot of the humor that makes Terriers what it is. When they go in to talk to Lindus and Hank is so happy to just torment him <laughs> about freedom. And when Lindus is so frustrated him that they that he paid them twice and he kit a they repaid him by kidnapping him. <laughs> There's so much humor in amongst all the darkness. Like Fuster Cluck is the first episode where everything clicks and like this is what the show is. It has every component. Yeah. It's yeah. got Steph, it's got Hank, it's got Britt. The only thing it's missing is a little more Katie. Yeah. Episode four of of shows. I always feel like that's the point where you know if you're hooked. Or if they just can't really sell this show to you. Mm. Can I tell you what I think the other thing is about Terriers that stands out that really makes this a brilliant but cancel one season as opposed to a lot of shows that we liked, say, at the same, there was a contemporaneous show called Lights Out on FX Mm -hmm. that we liked. Yeah. But didn't love. It doesn't get revisited by us like we do with Terriers. And by us, I mean me. And I revisit Terriers every year. I create a whole podcast around it. You guys might know about it. I have noticed. (laughs) Um, But also like Rubicon on AMC that we liked. Oh, yeah. But what Terriers has that those shows don't, and several other shows don't, is it nails its ending. Oh, man. Rubicon's penultimate was fantastic, yeah. if you recall. Yeah. We were both like, like, oh, it should just end right now. This yeah. is great. And it should end. And then it had another one. like, wah. But I think that's <laughs> that's the key to any of these sort of brilliant but canceled shows or any show that didn't get to continue that, that people want more of is that perfect ending. And even shows like, much as I love Firefly, Firefly just ends. Yeah. Oh yeah. It it had it had an ending later. We, we were lucky enough to get Serenity, which is a pretty good capper. Yeah. But Terriers had this ending, and, and part of that was sort of they had they had the writing was sort of on the wall, and they knew they might not get a second season. But also they just went in and they did the ending, and it's such a great noir ending in that it, you know nobody everybody doesn't die. There's there's definitely questions left over, and we're gonna talk about that. Mm-hmm. But when you look at it, you can just sit back in the end, just kind of sit back and go. Ah, it was a nice end. You're like that that moment when, and as Ted Griffin mentioned, they're in the truck forever. While you're always lamenting that there's not a second season, it's one of those where it's so precious yeah. because it's done so perfectly mm-hmm. that you're like, ah, if we get another one, what if what if I don't love everything in just the same way? It'll be a different thing. And that's there's a tiny part of me that is glad there wasn't more Terriers. I mean, it's a very small part. And it's the, very small. Yeah, mm. it's very small. I but, see it over there. Yeah. It can, it can get out of the room. <laughs> but there is a small part because, yeah, I I mean, much as I love to say Veronica Mars, mm. Veronica Mars season two and three are, are much weaker. And the movie I liked, but it's definitely not as strong as the show at its best. And Firefly, I really loved. But I worry that if they'd done a second season, that they could have had bad episodes. There's always that chance. The more you do, the chance is that something's going to go wrong in one of the episodes. Something's going to going to falter. That's just the nature of making anything. I mean, if we keep going on Beach Cup Detectives, episode 17 will probably be terrible. 
<laughs> but there is a silver lining to the dark cloud that is, is Terrier's ending early. And that is that it got this perfect ending and it's a perfect season of TV. And there's no point at which you go, oh, wish they hadn't done that. So let's talk about the arc. Okay. The the big arc of the show, which goes from Lindis to Zeitlin to Cutshaw. Mm-hmm. And it starts out as a rich guy who we don't know exactly what happened. When we first meet him, he was having an affair with his like personal assistant. And there was a sex tape. And as I recall, there was, he like, was also taking her into meetings. We yeah. ended up finding out. But there was like there was like a little map or something like that. Like we didn't really know what was going on with it. Mm-hmm. We just knew that all of a sudden when he got in jail, there were other forces keeping him there. And they had suddenly stumbled into something bigger. And even in Fuster Cluck, when that's revealed, we don't know who or what any of those people are. We just know that someone bigger is behind Lindis, that he was almost the patsy in this whole thing. And then we meet Zeitlin and Burke. Yeah. Who seem like this evil duo of the thinking man and the punching man. And we don't know exactly what they're up to either. We just know that they had some kind of real estate deal going on with Lindis. And maybe they're, you know, developing some kind of hotel to push people out, something like that. But they're Bane. And uh-huh. it turns out that Tali Al Ghul was pulling the strings the whole time. <laughs> yes. Except for that we never saw her until the last episode. Yes. Are you <laughs> saying Kutshaw was Tali Al Ghul? Yeah, I guess. Okay. Uh, that's I don't a, know if it works. That's a, that's up there with the soup metaphor. That's a little weird. Okay. <laughs> but it works in the same way the soup metaphor works. Whew, thank you. Uh, no, I think that, that it's interesting that Zeitlin is such a big bad that you didn't necessarily have to go any bigger. But then when they wanted to come back to the arc, they realized that, you know, we've already met this this bad guy and we can't just have them already have met Dr. Doom, you know? it's right. Ultimately, Zeitlin is a lawyer, and he's yeah. operating on some client's behalf. Somebody's And lawyers. we had to be revealed who that client is. Yeah. And it was, it was a great casting choice. And man, I keep thinking how much it would have been great to see Neil McDonough as the big bad in yeah. season two. Yes, I agree. Although then we might not have gotten him unjustified, you know, which would have been a shame. And Damien Dark. And Damien Dark. Well, that would have been okay. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. Actually, he was he's the best part of some of those plots because, you know, he's always great no matter what. Yeah. Even if he's the writing is not up to where it should be, which it's kind of is the DC sometimes they're they're giving a little cheese because when you see him do this kind of stuff with this kind of great dialogue and this kind of this kind of menace and then you see him do cartoon menace in DC, it's really sort of disappointing because I know he could have been the scariest bad guy ever, but he is here. Mm -hmm. I agreed. And if you look at it, like the arc of the, I don't know what you call them, the Gomez brothers pool cleaning uh, yes. detective agency. Yes. <laughs> Did they have another one they came up with in, in the car early on? What they were going to yeah, put they, on they business cards? ideas. I yeah, remember what the it, name it was. was. It, it was, well, it, in Pimp Daddy, that's when we actually learn what's actually on the card. Yeah. It was basically just Stallworth and Pollock private investigations. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But we see these guys as kind of bumbling small time detectives. That like like you said earlier, they stumble onto something bigger and they ultimately end up saving the city. Yeah. And in a way discovering a lot more about themselves that makes them I mean, I'd argue better people at the end of the arc. I, I could definitely argue. I mean, yeah. for one thing, Hank was lucky enough that we have the sins of the past episode where he gets to find out a thing that he didn't know, which is that he did not frame that rich guy. Yeah, yeah he gets absolved there yeah. of his, his past sins. Man, it was such a fantastically written episode. Yeah. yeah. And to some extent, he gets absolved of some of the sins that he had that destroyed his marriage. Mm-hmm. Because he is able to focus and 
not disappear into the bottle when he's confronted with a challenge again. And he gets vindication for his instinct that Moore was afoot with with Zeitlin and crew. Yeah. When he he goes against everyone else's better judgment of, hey, this is going to break you guys. You can't handle this. Yeah. And turns out, yeah. They cracked the case. They they took down a person that was trying to destroy Ocean Beach. What's interesting is that Britt is at a different point in his life because Britt is on the other end of that redemption cycle. Like he has just committed his big sin. Yeah. So he does get to help Hank resolve the case, but he's about to have to go through his own redemption process and go to prison and pay his dues, which Hank has already done and has come out the other side of. But we also see that Britt starts off at the beginning of the season as the new sidekick yeah. and very much the the immature person in, in his relationship and in just kind of how he handles himself in the real world. And yeah, he, he goes through a school of hard knocks here, but he comes out the other side owning up to the mistake that he made, the assault. Mm-hmm. I think we can all assume go to prison and yes. and take the punishment that comes with it. He's going to do his time. And he also goes up to Katie and he admits his faults in the relationship. And he wants to be the person that that's more mature and is ready to be a father and ready to be there for her, whether that's the prison time speaking <laughs> or, or he, he's got this newfound sense of, of maturity to him. It, it's still an interesting character development for both him and Hank. Yeah, and what do you guys think about Katie's arc? Because Katie starts out as she's the girlfriend, but she's she's got her own agency right from the beginning. Like, yeah. we see that she has more of a, her eye on the ball as far as the relationship goes. Like, she knows where she wants to go. Now, the fact that she self-destructs it later means that she's got issues just like everybody else does. But... Katie starts out in a place where she's sort of the the one who's like wanting to wanting Peter Pan to grow up and yeah and and, and be a real boy and all that kind of stuff and I know I just mixed Pinocchio and Peter Pan <laughs> but stay with me I uh, I think that she starts there and then as Britt starts to sort of mature into this a little bit she gets a little scared of it and she mm-hmm. also thinks she's worried that he's changing for her when I don't think he actually is. Yeah, it, it, you look at the guys on the show and they seem to go through a, a personal growth that, like I said, helps them become a better person. And on the flip side, you see the the destruction of the women in their lives. Yeah, it's true. Uh. Both Katie and Gretchen uh, end up kind of on the wrong side of things. Like, Katie loses her relationship. She's left in a, a tough situation with the pregnancy and the guy that she was with going to jail. Yeah. And I mean, I don't even know where her education path is at this point with veterinary school after, you know, the affair with her teacher. Like, where where is all of that for her life? It seems like she got dragged down by all of this. That's a reasonable point. Although I will say that was just one class. So, although I think he's going to teach the next few, I think they mentioned yeah, that he they, they, the they mentioned levels. that she has to go, she has to go back to him. So for yeah, two o two and the three o. Yeah, but there's no way she doesn't follow through with that. I, I can't see Katie. She was not broken by this. No. And also, I think you're leaving out one important thing. She has Winston. She did get Winston. So she's good. <laughs> Winston's so adorable. Yeah. I think it's amazing. okay. Uh, Gretchen in the same way. She comes to a piece in a way. It's accelerated because. They only had a couple episodes to deal with it. Like she loses Jason and she has to come to sort of a peace with it. But that's because they can't leave her a sobbing mess at the end of this this show. Well, yeah. and they, they leave her in the dark about the details. Yeah. Like, as far as I know, she never is aware that Hank was involved with Jason's death in any way. She doesn't know for sure. They never said anything. But 
she knows that something went on that Hank knows something about it. So I do think that would have been a thing for the second season, but I do think that she is aware that Hank has more involvement than he's saying and that she may be at the point where she realizes that every time Hank tells the truth, somebody gets destroyed and it's best if he's lying to let him lie. But ultimately, like she starts off in a fantastic place at she's, the beginning of this. She's in a healthy relationship with a guy yep. who we, we're all not sure of initially. Yep. But it turns out he's a great guy. Yeah. yeah. And then she loses all of that with all of the drama between her and Hank. Yeah. I think of all the characters that we were going into a hypothetical season two, Gretchen's arc is maybe the one I'd be most excited to see because I don't know where she goes from there. Yeah. She has to reinvent her entire life. And she can't just, she doesn't want to go back to Hank. And I don't think the writers had any intention to bring her back to Hank. Like that's a, that's a scorched earth kind of place. Like they can't get back together. That's kind of a mess. But you got to keep her in the story. But you got to keep her in the story because Kimberly mm-hmm. Quinn's so good. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then uh, there's Gustafson's arc, mm-hmm. which Gustafson is kind of a circle. He's a ring, if you will, to throw back to our pal Dave Lamplew. Yeah, there you go. Ah. Uh, he, uh, he starts off, he's the guy at the precinct, and he's clearly well-liked and has a sort of status there. And he goes to this thing where he's about to be pushed out. And at the end, he's back on top again. Yeah, he gets another little bit of a redemption arc. Yeah. Gets dragged down by one partner, and then, then, then that gets absolved by dragging down the other partner. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like, oh, that sucks for him. He just has a bad string of partners. You know what I think? I think uh, I think Gustafson's working alone from now on. Yeah, he's like, uh, no more partners. I'm good. I think okay. he'll he'll like friendly wave to Robledo outside the office, but if Robledo comes in like, I want to make detective. He's like, you know what? Me and partners don't work out so good. Yeah, no thanks. Correct uh, me if I correct me if I got this wrong. It, didn't in the last episode that they they revealed that Gustafson's like commanding officer, like the the person yeah, the who was, captain, yeah, the, the captain left. Didn't they bump Gustafson up? It was heavily implied that he was in line for. It. They didn't actually give it to him. Okay, I don't think. okay, but it was yeah, very much I think a, he was gonna. Yeah. The 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 sense I got was that he was probably moving up. I can see him very much as the new chief. Oh, sure. Like yeah. That, you know, and then, then he wouldn't have to have a, have a partner worry. You know? Yeah. Steph. Mm-hmm. Oh, Steph. That's a character whose arc. She's she's only in a handful of episodes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But she makes such an impression. And part of that is Karina Loke's performance because she's fantastic in every minute of she's on screen. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it is what an interesting character She's a genius, but she has severe mental issues that cause her to be a danger to herself and others. And she's kind of the opposite of Hank in that Hank is so empathetic. And partly I'm reading Donald Logue into this, but she he's so empathetic and so like uh not I don't want to say touchy-feely, but he he wears his emotions very much on his sleeve. He's an emotional guy. He reacts emotionally. And she's a detached robot. And she's a detached robot. <laughs> it's it's I mean, she Who just she, says the the meanest things yes. without a care in the world. Yes. But then she'll pull back. Like, especially with Hank, she'll do the thing where she says something and then she'll say something like what she talks about how great a guy Jason is, and he says, But I'm sure she was happier with you. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> she knows to cover, she just doesn't feel it. Because that's that's her she has that intelligence, but not necessarily the emotional intelligence. And her arc where she sort of she leaves the place that was trying to help her because she doesn't like what they're doing to her. Doesn't like the, the changes. And that's a very common thing. That's very true to mental illness and, and people that I've known who have mental illness problems. But for her to sort of recognize that, no, she needs to go back. And eventually when she is going back to a home, she's basically giving Hank the speech he was giving her. Yeah. yeah. That she's telling him he's going to be okay. And she, you know, she'll be fine and he'll be okay. And she has to be the adult when he's had to be the adult the whole time. It's such a beautiful relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know where Steph's arc could have gone in a second season either, but 
I assume we would have gotten more of her because she was too much fun not to have back. She would just be the MacGyver of the team. <laughs> Getting them out of situations by building a radio. No, the, Ma- well, on a hall no, the MacGyver of the team is Blodgett, Swift, and Gunt. That's true. <laughs> I love Blodgett, Swift, and Gunt. Yeah. Which, by the way, I asked them when I talked to Alex Berg, who is one of the Blodgett, Swift, and Gunt crew, I asked them, like, where they, I, I always thought it was like the RV crew. And I guess they didn't really have a name other than Blodgett, Swift, and Gunt. But he seemed to sort of recognize the lone gunman of it all. Yeah. But when I talked to, I don't remember if it was Tim Minear or Ted Griffin or both. It's Ted Griffin. About the lone gunman, there was no, there was no deliberate uh, carryover there. Yeah, it was just like, who want this kind of crew that they could go to yeah. as, a, as a tech resource. But I loved those guys. Every time they showed up, these were... They were comedians, and you could tell they were comedians. Once once I found out they were a sketch comedy troupe, it made a lot of sense, because whenever they came in, there was a comedic edge, and they had that chemistry. Mm-hmm. Getting that crew, yeah, you just immediately know that they're going to click with each other, and they can ping off of each other in the way that you need for that kind of supporting cast. Yeah. And speaking of supporting cast, there was one more character who came in at the very end but made a huge impression, and that was Laura Ross. Laura Ross. Yeah. He's so cool. You've got to have the crusading journalist if you're going to do noir. And if you can do a crusading journalist who has an instant rapport with your lead detective, that's even better. Mm -hmm. Where she's not just simply a clone of the lead detective. No. You know, sometimes you see like a, like the, like the rule 63 character kind of comes in for lack of a better term, you know, where it's like, she's not just a female Hank. She is, she has a completely different set of skills. You know, she's a different way of handling things. You know, she's also a little more put together than Hank, to be honest. I mean, she does the same thing Hank does when she's threatened. Like when Zeitlin is threatening Hank, Hank gets real cool about the whole thing. And when Zeitlin is throwing Ross, she gets real cool about the whole thing. But it's coming from a different place. Like, Hank does it even when he's terrified. And Laura, you always get the sense that she's planning her next move mm-hmm. when she's when she's backed into those corners. The two of them complement each other really well. I love also that Britt doesn't like her at first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's one of the things I think is really good is that I believe that. And, and like, your best buddy finds a new person who he gets along with the same way that you. You're going to be jealous. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I thought that that was a really nice little touch. Especially since he was away yeah. initially when she kind of comes into the scene. And it's like, who's this new yeah. person? Just replace me. Why is she giving me orders? Who is this? I've never met her before. <laughs> exactly. And there's a lot of other smaller characters. I mean, I, I, I mentioned this throughout the, the Beach Cops episodes of the episodic characters, whether it's uh, the guy with all the rings in him or that kind of thing. <laughs> but as far as supporting cast, we've also got Maggie, played by Jamie Denbo, oh, yeah. who's only in this for little bits. I mean, she's there to give them jobs and to scare the hell out of them when she's gone to have the baby and they think maybe Zeitlin did something yeah. to her. But she's the grown-up living in the real world who tells them when to get the hell out of what they're doing and they inevitably ignore her. She gets to play the no bullshit, pragmatic, yeah. what are you guys doing? Yes. No, stop yeah. it, you idiots. Yeah. <laughs> and they go, nah, we're going to do it. <laughs> we're going to do the thing. Yep. There's the owner of the diner who is just, uh, he's a little character, but it's a fun bit. I always mm-hmm. love the back and forth that they have yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. because he just seems like so annoyed by them all yeah. the time, but they're always there. And so I feel like there's still that that kind of begrudging kinship there. Yeah, when he's yeah. griping about Hank taking advantage of the bottomless coffee. Yeah. yeah. When he when he begrudges them the kids' free bre- breakfast when they've earned free breakfast by getting the kid out of the bathroom. Yeah. Like every little bit, there's definitely the sense of the what he really wants is to kick them out. But he just can't do it. And also, like at any time, the waitress comes over to their table. Yeah, the waitress loves them. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, the owner just seems to be like these guys. These guys. <laughs> <laughs> then there's Reynolds, 
Yeah. Who right. that that is such an interesting arc because first of all, that arc wasn't planned. <laughs> that was another one of those last minute where they came to the actor and said, Look, yeah, this is probably it for you, but look, it's probably it for all of us. Yeah. yeah. And you'll be remembered if you do this. It was such a great call. Yeah. It was such a out of left field twist. Yeah. That's one of those Kaiser Sose kind of dropping the cup moments. You're like, yeah. whoa, if you go back and look. It was totally him. Yeah. They're leaving all the clues throughout the episode. Oh, yeah. Yep. And the great thing about that, of course, is that all they had to do was not contradict what we knew of Reynolds before, because that was not planned until like episode 11. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was, that's good writing. That's when you don't write yourself into too many corners. You couldn't reveal in episode 12 that Hank had been the bad guy all along. Right. Yeah, they left enough of a generic outline for Reynolds Mm -hmm. outside of him having a slightly contentious relationship with them, but begrudgingly helping them as well. Yeah. And that fit perfectly into this mold of, this is a guy, we've seen him all along, and, oh, look, he's terrible. (laughs) Well, And they thread that needle of, you want him to be interesting and likable and a character. Mm-hmm but not define what he is until you need that specific thing. And I think that's a really hard thing. People tend to overcorrect to generic and bland. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a lot of complaints. Go back to Justified. Feels like we're bashing Justified, but I love Justified too. <laughs> I just don't love it as much as Terriers. But the whole thing they did with, as uh, Seppenwall and Feinberg used to call them, uh, Black Marshall and Sniper Marshall. Yeah. Because the joke was they couldn't remember their names. Now, I, I love Tim and Rachel. That were their, Those were their names. But they were not wrong that sometimes they would just plug those background characters in when they needed a bit of dialogue or they needed a moment. And they didn't always let them develop as well. Over the course of five, six seasons, they did. But Terriers did the same thing over the course of one episode. Right? Yeah. Where Reynolds was a fully fledged out character, even though we didn't know that much about him. And then we have Eleanor and Mickey Gosney, who are bookend characters. Eleanor is in the first episode and the last episode. Mm-hmm. And Mickey's in the first episode and is mentioned in a lot of other ones, but for reasons is not in any other episodes. Mickey had about a minute. I yeah. think, yeah. time. <laughs> but he was very memorable. That's a character actor who's been in a lot of stuff. He played uh, yeah. a very important character in The Shield. Oh, yeah. And so when I saw him, I was I was struck by his performance because I remembered that character, who was also sort of a damaged guy who kept screwing up things for Vic. That was sort of his role that he played. I loved Eleanor Gosney. She was that tough as hell, sarcastic that first episode where she's in grave danger and doesn't seem to realize it. Yeah, just oblivious. Comes back to the last episode where she's in grave danger and doesn't seem to realize it. <laughs> then go back to see her and she's like, oh, it's you guys. You want a beer? <laughs> oh, no, not you. You don't drink, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> she's another one of those great little characters on the fringes that I would have liked to have seen more of. And I don't know if we would have. Hank had something of a relationship with her mm-hmm. in that, you know, she was a little girl when, when he used to know his drinking buddy. And so it was like, adjacent stepdaughter sort of but like there never seemed to be anything really paternal in the relationship there no there was nothing there yeah it was just like he's just like oh i don't like to think about this little girl as a grown-up woman yeah yeah moving from the characters let's let's talk about that season two oh yeah you had a series of dangling questions, I believe, Grant. I did. I, I wrote a bunch of things where I was like, I was curious how they might address this stuff going forward. And I guess I could just read through it if you're yeah, interested. Yeah, let's, let's talk about it. Yeah. If we start with Katie, the question is, would they address who the father is of her kid? Does she have the kid even? Yes. Mm. That I know for sure. She has the kid. Well, okay. Anything is up. I, when I talked to Tim Minear and, and Ted Griffin, they both sort of expressed that 
everything is up in the air, you know, that anything could be done now because when you're when you're talking about a season two and it doesn't happen, if you do go back to it, nothing is locked down. But their plans, the things, the things they had talked about, there's a scene where Britt gets the paternity test from mm-hmm. Katie in prison. He's out in the prison yard. Oh, and she God. says... Uh, look, I got this back. I didn't look at it. You can tear it up or look at it. That's up to you. And then they cut over the prison yard and they just see it from from like a long shot. It's a freeze he, frame of him. And, and he opens it up and he puts his fist up in the air. <laughs> it, oh. yeah, because it's Britt's kid. Of course it's Britt's kid. Yeah. That's really sweet. And of course she has the kid. Like, yes, that's, I think that that we can, we can say for sure. While nothing is certain. They could go a different way if they want to go a different way if they ever do get back to movies. Wait, uh, are you saying he goes to prison? I'm saying he <laughs> definitely goes to prison. This was not one of my dangling questions, nope. by the way. <laughs> no. we all, and what I thought was interesting, and it wasn't everybody, because I asked this question of numerous people, and almost everyone said, of course he goes to prison. Mm-hmm. But I think it was Tim Minear, one of the first people I interviewed, who said, well, we don't know. We left it open for a reason. Yeah, they, they could have, just like uh, Eastbound and Down, had an entire season in Mexico. <laughs> yep. Well, apparently not, because they both would have spent the season in jail uh, for I, the I, I just crimes see, they committed in Mexico. <laughs> I just wanted to see Hank and Britt with their, their cornrow bullets <laughs> going down. But, you know, the, the lyrics, what, what always stuck to me about the ending of Terriers was listening to the lyrics of Gunfight Epiphany, the yeah. theme song, which is all about people on the lamb. Yeah, you know, it is. About running from the cops, you know, like, uh, like, like trying to find connects going from border to border and just just it, it just kind of like evoked a lot of uh imagery there you know? yeah fugitive imagery yeah. yeah so does katie finish veterinary school or now that she's she has a kid does she have to put that on the side so you know i think that's an obvious conflict for season two is katie having to deal with this kid who she she wanted mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily in this way but she wanted this kid <laughs> definitely but, not in these circumstances but but that now she's having to choose one dream over the other instead of having all of it uh, that would be an interesting area to explore going to Brit would he get released early on probation a lot of people get released early from their their sentence he got sentenced to one year would he get it extended does he come back with a bunch of prison tats? How, how does he come back? Is he uh, is he a little bit of a, a different person? Is he more defensive or territorial or a little bit broken? Here's what I prison? think. He comes back. He's super jacked. On one on one set of knuckles, it says Winston. On the other one, it says Katie. That's <laughs> that's where that's where I would have gone. Yeah. How many so fingers I does he have on that one hand? It's look. It's doubled up. Okay. okay. All right. It's, <laughs> but no, I think the obvious solution. This is something we talked about TV dudes recently. Is a time jump. Mm-hmm. You uh, you jump ahead a year. They can of, jump ahead six years at this point, yeah. and then you use flashbacks <laughs> to show what happens in prison. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's where they would have gone. I mean, they obviously they had a notion for him being in prison, and you can't do terriers with Brit in prison and Hank out in the world for too long. Like one or two episodes of that mm-hmm. is about as much as you can get away with because so much of the show is the chemistry between Hank and Brit. And I think if you did a whole season of Brits in jail, hangs out and out doing private detective stuff. That would get old really fast. That is not Terriers, unless Laura Ross sticks around. Even uh, yeah, even that. How no. many episodes? How many episodes of Laura Ross by? Maybe you can go three at that point. Okay. I still think that the heart of Terriers 
is Hank and Britt, and you can't have them separated for that long without it not being the it's show. It's an understated bromance. I mean, yeah. it's a, it's yeah. a complete bromance, yeah. but it, it's not heavy-handed in, in it. I was just really, like, Laura Ross really made an impression on me, where it's like oh, sure. how strong a character she was in just such a short amount of time. Yeah. I think if it were up to me, I would love to have seen that maybe Hank and Laura had something of a falling out that the two of them tried to make a relationship work, Ooh. that it didn't work, because they talk about that at the end, that they're, that they're both kind of trouble in a relationship. And then that she comes back for something in the middle that they need. And then there's a nice tension where they're kind they, of partners. They're partners and they both kind of want the relationship and make, can they make it work? I hate to suggest will they, won't they, and Terriers, mm-hmm. but I guess that's kind of what I'm suggesting mm-hmm. is a little bit of that tension of can they make it work this time or are they no good for each other? Well, the nice thing about that is that, you know, with the writers on this show, one of the writers is working on one of the greatest will they, won't they shows of all time. You're referring to Mr. Fief Sutton. Yes, sir. Of Cheers. Uh, yes. And, and also, I mean, uh, almost every single episode of this show, the writers are so smart that they know when a trope is in front of them and they know how to pivot and turn it on its head. I agree. No. I, I would trust these guys with a will they, won't they? Yeah. If we go back to Brit being in prison, though, yeah. I mean, granted, we could just move past it, like you said, flash forward. I was kind of curious about this issue with Cutshaw. Yeah. That they resolved that there was bad business dealings and that Zeitlin's going to pay for those actions. Right. Would Zeitlin be in prison, in the same prison? Would Cutshaw be vindictive toward Brit because of them taking down this and he would have people in the prison? Would, would Brit be yeah. in a sort of jeopardy because of their actions? See, I think all that is potentially interesting territory. I will say this. I cannot see a world in which Zeitlin and Britt go to the same prison. Yeah. Zeitlin is going to be in the prison with the tennis courts, and Britt's going to be in the one with the weight room. What does that mean, though, for Cutshaw? This airport, at a certain point, I would feel like it's too big to fail. They've already put a lot of pieces in place. They own some particular properties that the writing might be on the wall for the fall of Ocean Beach to this airport. Except they mentioned in the final episode that People have been trying to make this new airport in San Diego for years, and it always fails for one reason or the other. Mm. It's kind of like Austin and Light Rail. Mm. Yes, everybody (laughs) knows it's a good idea, but nobody knows how to do it. And so all it takes is one little push, and the whole house of cards falls apart. So Hank found the push, and they made that particular house of cards fall apart. I do think the notion of Cutshaw trying to take some revenge on on Hank by, by way of Brit would be interesting. I think that the really interesting thing about, about Brit being in prison for a year is you could do at least a couple of stories where Brit gets out of prison and then he needs to help out his people that he met in prison with with jobs. Mm-hmm. Like people, whether it's people they know on the outside or someone who gets out and needs his help. Mm-hmm. Like it sort of branches out again into the the people who need help who don't get it from the institutions. They have that new Rolodex of, of potential clients exactly. with no money. Yes. <laughs> Which is, yeah, that's that, that's by definition who hire them, people with no money. Exactly. I loved when you, you and Mike Moody were talking about episode two with Montel. Yeah. The idea of seeing Montel come back after a year, like uh, stay, lay low for a year. Yeah. Like hit, hit the return of him for a particular... Like, key scene would be fantastic to I see. would have been so happy to see Matthew Willie come back and play Montel again. I just, I imagine a thing where they're like, they they go in and they like walk in on a robbery and he's not using a gun just like he promised. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, well. He's using a katana or something. <laughs> it's like, well, he followed through on his word. He's carrying around a sledgehammer, but he's not using the gun. Uh, and, and then the relationship issues. Like, what, what would Hank's relationship with Gretchen be going forward? And does she find out about the involvement of him and and Jason's death. I feel like that had to have been hanging over their head. Like that's Mm got to be in their head for season two that Hank and and Gretchen are in this place where they've reached sort of a detente and they're both at a place where 
Hank knows he's never getting Gretchen back. Whether he loves her or not, he knows he's never getting Gretchen back. Gretchen sort of realizes how much Hank loves her despite everything else. And they're, they've reached a sort of relationship equilibrium that is going to get thrown out because Hank's guilt over what happened to Jason, he's eventually going to tell her. That's what Hank does. Mm. Eventually, he's going to tell her what happened, even though it's no good for either of them. In my fantasy of a season two, yep, I, I do like the idea of Hank collaborating with Laura Ross for a few episodes, but... Even more so, I love the idea of Hank and his sister kind of acting as partners. Like, oh say, <laughs> say he can't afford to like keep her in, right? But if if he can keep watch on her and she can actually help him on cases, they mm-hmm. can just kind of be acting brother and sister partners. For a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and and like what she would contribute would just be hilarious. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Yeah. To go to your point about Gretchen, mm-hmm. I think there is a lot of story in Gretchen, even even in the uh, the detective side of things. Maybe not where she's actually trying to break a case, but you know we get little hints of what her job is over the course of season one. She might be an activist or something like that. You know, she's definitely into like environmental study and research and stuff. Mm-hmm. She could sniff up some other kind of plan right. that maybe Cutshaw or Cutshaw's cohorts is involved with. You know, well, with her husband gone, maybe she doesn't want to date for a while. She just wants to pour herself into her work. And maybe that's how she finds more possible hints or leads on things, you know? Yeah, I think her environmental work, and we only get the barest hints of it. We see her office yeah. and we find out in, a, in the past that she had a meeting with the city council. So we, we get a sense of what she did, but, but they could have gone almost anywhere. She could have been a community organizer. Mm-hmm. She could have been an environmental activist. She could have been a lawyer. We don't really know. But... You can definitely draw a line from that to the stuff that Cutshaw's involved in, and that gives Hank a way into Cutshaw, and it also gives Hank a way into Gretchen. Mm-hmm. If the two of them are sort of working a case together and that he's like going to her to ask her questions, it's going to eventually lead her to figuring out what, what happened to Jason. Yeah. yeah. And also, just seeing Cutshaw, who we saw introduced as this menacing figure, but we didn't really get a lot of him, but to see more of him developing and to see a relationship between him and Hank, the way we saw the one with Hank and Zeitland, Mm -hmm. that would be fascinating to watch. Man, I am so excited for season two. Yeah, it's going to be great. (laughs) It's going to be really good. Yeah, yeah. So as we get near the end of this episode, let's talk about favorite quotes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, of course, have numerous ones and I imported most of those into the episodes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was... Well, that you was had a... favorites, like, full-on scenes. Oh, yeah, I put full-on scenes in there. I, I believe one of our episodes actually just played an entire episode of Terriers in there. <laughs> Look, I am not going to apologize for creating my own Terriers audio drama. Look, I'm going to keep demanding you apologize. <laughs> but but do you guys have some favorite quotes? Absolutely. My, my by far favorite quote is from the end of Asunder. When you see the entire struggle of Hank to avoid drinking and and desperately wanting to because of Gretchen's wedding and him just feeling like complete shit. And at the same time, the breakdown of Britt's relationship. And at the very end, Britt says to Hank, I really need a drink. And then Hank just replies, I don't. Yeah. As they walk off. And it's it's so simple and it's just so powerful because of the the hour of experience that we all just shared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that line. There's, it's a perfect summary. Mm-hmm. There's two that stick out for me. Uh, one is a Hank and one is a Brit. Uh, the Hank one is in Fuster Cluck where he says, we framed a guilty man. The Lord's light shineth upon us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, one, that one I think is both a, a perfect summation of the philosophy of Hank Dolworth mm-hmm. and also just a really funny line. And the one from Brit, and this is kind of a goofy one, but... 
that joke that he tells, I think also in Fuster Cluck, where he's telling <laughs> the joke about the old guy who guesses his weight by juggling the guy's balls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's it's not just because the joke is so corny and, and, and that it's a funny it's a funny joke. It's that Michael Raymond James delivers the old guy punchline so perfectly. He's, ah, you told me yesterday. It's like <laughs> something about his delivery. I'm so proud of it. Yes, it kills me. Because he makes that joke in the pilot, too. Yeah. About uh, the raccoon. Yes. Yeah. No, that's not in the pilot. Uh, he Is that does, also in Fuster Clock? Uh, no, no, it's it's not. <laughs> it's uh, it's actually, I think, in episode seven or eight. It's when Hank's been injured. And he comes over and he says something about, you know what they say about raccoons, right? They're not tidy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. yeah. Uh, Britt Pollock's, uh, Pollock's bad jokes are definitely a running theme that I love. What about you, Nate? You got any favorite quotes? Well, I don't really have a favorite quote, but one of the things I do have a, a little list of are these weird little moments. Okay, now over the course of the podcast, you've talked about big moments. You've talked yeah. about like really recognizable moments or like we're talking about now with dialogue, which was, you know, crafted by the writers and delivered by the actors. Mm-hmm. And, and and shot and framed expertly and stuff. These little things, I don't know if they're stage direction. I don't know if it's just a little weird thing that the actor decided to do on the spur of the moment. But there are these little moments that I have abused the Netflix 10 second rewind button over and over and over, especially because I was watching so much of these for, for uh, uh, visual cues to right. draw. Yeah. But I, w- I would keep watching these moments over and over and they would just bring a huge fucking smile on my face. And to go back to that soup metaphor, this is like seasoning. This is like when you get soup or, or any kind of food from a restaurant and you just get it's soup. It, and yeah, I yeah. love that you brought it back to soup. <laughs> <laughs> it's like where you go to a place and you just you always get it from this one restaurant because it is just it's just so much better there. But you can't exactly tell why, you know, it's just whatever that seasoning is. They know their minestrone, man. So there's one moment where I think it was in Pimp Daddy. You were talking earlier about Brit, you know, making bad jokes and, yeah. and stuff like that. But this is where he's almost laughing at his own joke. It's not even a joke. It's just a moment where Brit is going through Hank's mail and he notices the invite to Gretchen's wedding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's like, I don't know. That's kind of fuckcocketed. <laughs> and, and then he gets this expression on his face. Like he just he just gets this little glint <laughs> of a smile. Grin. He's yeah. So it's, proud he tried it's, it. <laughs> it's, it's, like a, it's like a fourth grade kid who's trying out a new swear word for the first time. Yeah. You know? And he just gets this a little grin and then Hank makes that makes that crack about like it's a good thing those Yiddish lessons are paying off and, <laughs> but just but I would just watch that because at the time I was trying to get a good picture of Michael Raymond James to draw and I was like that, that could be the one but then I went instead went for the one earlier where he's kind of you know going through the fridge Michael Raymond James has that that shitting grin, that sort of happy expression he's got. Mm-hmm. That's his tool that he goes to in the same way that Donald Logue goes to that sort of heartbroken hangdog look. Yeah. Like it is such a defining character element of both of them. Yeah, I would agree. And relating to that, there's actually a smile that Hank delivers, mm-hmm. that Donald Logue delivers, that is almost, this is the thing that I kept rewinding the most out of all of them. In Asunder, mm-hmm. At the end of the episode, you know, just after Hank has gotten Laura Ross, you know, spirited away in the limousine and she's safe <laughs> and everything is coming up Hank, he encounters Zeitland and Burke. He, he approaches them. Yeah. And it's the exchange when Burke says, there's a there's a name for guys who sucker punch people like that. It's like, yeah, independent contractor. There's also a name for you. Maybe this is my quote, but it's like, <laughs> there's also a name for people like you, but I promised Father Michael I would never say that word. Yeah. <laughs> and he has this biggest, silliest smile on his face yeah when he says that line and for some it's like when someone smiles 
and then you just can't help but smile back. Yeah. Or it's, it's like a genuine, like, oh, I, like I found myself smiling, stupid grin every single time I tell it. I'll just rewind it and rewind it. And I wanted to draw that for one yeah. of the things, but I was running out of time for that Ooh, episode. Ooh, Randy. Nate's got a crush on Donald Logue. I have a crush on Donald Logue. Okay, we all do. <laughs> we all do have a crush on Donald Logue. Everyone Lowe. loves Donald Logue. In Sins of the Past, after that heart-wrenching scene right at the opener, and this goes back to my theory about why Britt might not like Laura Ross so much, mm-hmm. this little moment where we just got done seeing this horrible scene of Britt and Katie pretty much saying goodbye and mm-hmm. Winston leaving with Britt. Yeah. And Katie is just a wreck. She's in tears. Yeah. And Britt's not doing too well either, but yeah. but he's trying, he's trying to say stay strong like a man you know but the minute they get to hank's house winston makes a beeline to the dining room where who's sitting there is laura ross and then you just hear oh who's a good little sweet potato oh look at you oh you scary come on give me a kiss give me a kiss oh you so cute give me a kiss and winston's just loving it you know it's like mm-hmm. oh oh my god it's someone who's given me love and so now this strange woman that 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 brit doesn't really know is totally winning over his dog yeah you know and, and I kind of think that could just be like a little bit of like vinegar on the wound yeah, well, that this, Brit might be feeling. You yeah, know? well, this woman has replaced Brit in 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 Hank's eyes. That's true. And she's replaced Katie in Winston's in eyes. In Winston's eyes, yeah. yes. <laughs> I can definitely see where that would <laughs> but, but also hearing hearing Laura Ross just kind of, just because from out of nowhere, you just hear it, It's like, oh, who's a cute little sweet <laughs> potato? I was just like, I have to listen to that like over and over. <laughs> and then, of course, the the fantastic, you know, I was just hearing police scanner. They've, they've got an APB out on you. Did you just say that a PB and J out on you? Because it is such a stupid joke, but it is just it's. But it's so endearing, especially the the laugh that Brit delivers after that. Yeah, it's well, just. And I think what makes that work so well is a. It's the kind of stupid joke you tell your friends that crack you up, and everyone else looks at you like you're idiots. Yeah, I have a lot of those jokes <laughs> because I'm an idiot, but also because the circumstances they're in are so dire. And yet these guys are still enjoying each other's company. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, that's a key to what makes the show work. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. But that does lead to the question. I did pitch rather hard when I talked to, to Ted and other people, the notion of doing more. And the most commonly referenced thing was a movie. Mm-hmm. To go sort of six years later and do a movie of some kind, mm-hmm. and my question is, what do you do with a movie? What do you, what do you, what, what big story do you tell? I mean, uh, the ultimate takedown of Cutshaw. That'd think. be the movie, right? Yeah, right. Well, and I also said, like, I would love to see comic books. Mm-hmm. I think, I think a Terrier's comic because the beautiful thing about a comic is that you can jump around in time. You can do stories of. You know, Hank as a cop, you can do stories of Brit as a thief, you can do more of Brit and Ray, and then you can do the modern day stuff. You can sort of jump around in time. You don't you're not beholden to the actors. The downside, of course, is that you don't have the performances. You don't right? yeah. And as much as I've seen TV shows, I mean, they did a Shield comic book, they did a 24 comic book, they've done Buffy comic books that Joss Whedon wrote. How right? do you how do you illustrate how fantastic those performances yeah, are? And I'm sure that there could be a very good Terrier's comic, especially if Griffin wrote it. I I mean, the guy's wrote in movies, written TV. I'm sure he could hack comics. They do more niche comics yeah. than Terrier's. Yes. We yeah. could we could have a Terrier's comic. That said, it would not be the preferred format. And I don't think these guys would do it because yeah, the big part of the Terriers was for everybody to work together. Yeah. However, I have one last pitch. And I know, Ted, that you're listening. <laughs> so I've been listening to this show on Gimlet Media called Homecoming, which is an oh. audio drama starring Catherine Keener, Oscar Isaac, some other big names. And it is a mystery. 
and it is all audio, but it very much gives the impression of TV type thing. It's it's an it's a fiction narrative. Mm-hmm. You could do a Terrier's audio drama. All these people are busy, but you could get them together and do a script, and it would be almost like doing TV, but on a podcast budget. I'm Damn. just saying. Terriers and podcasts, to me, seems like a beautiful kind of alchemy. <laughs> I'd listen in a heartbeat. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on to do this bonus episode with me. Pleasure. Thanks and for having me on. We have one last episode that'll be coming up that's going to be us talking nuts and bolts and behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. But until that time, we've got great case of the week, compelling characters. And a desperate plea for an audio drama. Yeah, hey, we got fun. Beach Cop Detectives is an independently run podcast co-produced by Randy Lander and Grant Davis from the TV Dudes and part of the Permanent Record Network. Music for this series includes the surf music tracks Happy and Whimsical by Paul Tyann. To hear more of his work, go to soundcloud.com slash Paul Tyann. Artwork for the show is by Nate Bliss. You can find him at n8bliss-art.tumblr.com. You can like us on Facebook at Beach Cop Detectives and on Twitter at Beach Cop Podcast. You can hear weekly TV commentary by Randy and Grant at thetvdudes.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.